Father, we lift our hands to you. Father, fall afresh. Fill us with your spirit. Restore us with your love. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us this beautiful day to gather in your name and in your presence with friends and family. And Father, we pray that you would be over, be over our hearts today. Lord, that we would make ourselves vulnerable to you. God, that you would speak to us. And Lord, that we would listen. God, we commit this time to you. And we give you all the praise and the glory. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Quick question for you guys. When the gas light in your car turns on, do you know how many miles you have left on your tank of gas? 25. How many people? Oh, okay, we've got an actual number, 25. When the gas light turns on, I got 25 miles. Who knows, the, three miles? Oh, 30, I was like, three miles, holy cow, that's, that's a real like, low gas light. Okay, now, for those of you who don't know, do you fill your tank when it gets to about three quarters? No? Okay, that would be very paranoid. Someone? Yes? Okay. How about half tank? Who fills it at a half tank? Okay. Okay. What about a quarter tank? Who fills it at a quarter? Okay, when the light turns on, you fill yours? Okay. When the light turns on, you go to the mile that you know you can go to, and then you get gas. Okay, we've got some brave souls, right? So when I was a kid, I was paranoid about running out of gas. My parents will attest to this. There were many a trips where one of them accidentally said, accidentally, we need gas. And immediately the young me was triggered and said, are we going to run out of gas? Do we need to get gas now? And I know it was so bad that it got to a point where I, they never told me this, but I know they at some point refused to acknowledge the gas while I was in the car. And it's funny because you look at it nowadays, Amanda would tell you the gas is the last thing that's on my mind. That is no longer an issue. Uh, it's been on more than one occasion where she'll hop in the driver's seat, she'll look at the gas gauge, the light is on, and she'll say, how long has this light been on? And I say, I don't know, a couple days? It's funny, well, and it's funny because I only live a few blocks away, so gas really isn't an issue for me. And so it's worked its way out, and I've become oblivious to the gas gauge. And nowadays, they have this little meter that tells you, or this, this little thing that tells you exactly how many miles you've got. Like, the light turns on, you look, and you've got 30 miles left. Now, there are two reactions, I think, that people have to this little meter. And the first is, the gas light turns on, okay, i got to get some gas. And I think that's the fairly common one. That's the one that makes the most sense. The second one, I think, when the light turns on, people look at it and they think it's a challenge. <laughs> oh, you think I can only go 30 miles? Watch me go 35. 
watch me go 40. And we begin to push it, and that temptation is there to just go one more mile. Well, if you haven't already guessed and t- saw the, the graphic that we have up, we are entering a new sermon series, and it is called Running on Fumes. And we're not going to exactly discuss the morality of letting your gas tank get low in your car, but we are going to talk about running on fumes in life, in things that are very important to us, such as work and finances and relationships. See, all of these things, it's very important that we're not running on fumes. And so as we do with every sermon series, every new sermon series, we begin with prayer. So if you will join with me in prayer as we pray over this sermon series, Heavenly Father, we take this time to commit to you this sermon, this sermon series, and all of the things that we're going to be talking about, how we maybe sometimes become oblivious to the gas gauge of our life. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts as some of these subjects might be very difficult to navigate. We are very prideful. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to let down our defense to you. And, God, that you would speak to us. God, we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, if you guys aren't car savvy... You might, you might know that running out of gas is a bad idea. But we don't really know exactly how bad. You see, most, most cars have a fuel pump in them. And this pump is lubricated by gasoline. However, when you run out of gas, that fuel pump has nothing to lubricate it. And so it can cause some pretty severe damage to this car. Now, now you know, don't run out of gas. Save yourself a little bit of heartache and save the longevity of your fuel pump. However, this is also applicable to our life. You see, when we are running low on fuel, we can run into the risk of causing damage in our life. And unlike a fuel pump, it's a lot harder to fix something that's gone wrong in your life. And so today, we're going to begin to unpack the first sermon in our series, Running on Fumes in My Marriage. Now, I need to address the elephant in the room. Yes, not all of us are married. Not everyone here is in a relationship, but I guarantee you know someone. Maybe not an intimate someone, but you do know someone. You have friends, you have family, and guess what? you can still run on fumes with them. You can still get on thin ice. You can still be sputtering along through life wishing that you had more oomph. And so as we talk today, and when we talk about marriage, if you are not married, please don't check out. Because the principles that we're going to be talking about today, they apply just as much to friendships and relationships as they do as marriage. Because let's be real, when we talk about relationships and marriage, we have to be mature. We have to be willing to admit that not every marriage, not every relationship is the way it should be. And that sometimes they have a little more damage than we care to admit. And it's very important to be mature about this topic because if we aren't real about the damage in our relationships, there's no way we can fix them. 
And Jesus makes it abundantly clear about, that we need to be mature in these kinds of topics. Uh, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, we're going to be reading from the message version on this uh, scripture because it really applies, I think, to this situation. Uh, it really speaks to the need to be mature. So if you'll follow along with me, we'll have it up on the, on the screen. Uh, but Jesus said, not everyone is mature enough to live a married life. It requires a certain aptitude and grace. Marriage isn't for everyone. Some from birth seemingly never give marriage a thought. Others never get asked or accepted. And some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. But if you are capable of growing into the largeness of marriage, do it. And so I, I really like the way the message phrases this because it really talks about and really emphasizes that we need to be mature about this. Because let's be real, some of us aren't mature about relationships. Not even the ones who are married, you're still not mature enough to be married, right? And it also talks about the largeness of marriage. Because holy cow, you have no idea what you're stepping into when you first start, right? You have no idea what you're first stepping into when you ask someone to be your friend. Like, if I had known this at the beginning, I probably wouldn't have asked you to be my friend, right? I wouldn't. But here's the thing. When we go through like marriage counseling, when you do things like premarital counseling, the point of that isn't to prepare you for marriage. It's to show you that you are in no way prepared for marriage at all. It is to equip you so that when you come across, when you come across those unfamiliar situations, that you have the tools to walk through it. And let's be real, friendships, relationships, marriages, they are hard work. They are really hard. Proverbs 24, verse, or chapter 24, verse 3 has some really good insight on marriage and relationships. It says, A house is built by wisdom and becomes strong through good sense. Now the house that we are talking about here is your relationships. It's your marriage. And it's built on wisdom. As we know, if you were here for our wisdom sermon series, you may, and through personal experience, you know wisdom does not come easy. Sometimes it's a very painful experience and comes at, the, at great expense. And so it takes hard work to gain wisdom. So we see marriage, if we hope to have a strong marriage, a strong relationship, it takes really hard work. And just like our vehicles that we drive, our relationships have indicator lights. And so today, we're going to begin to unpack what's some of those indicator lights. I'm hoping that if you are in one of these places, you might have an aha moment. Because if you're like me, you might be oblivious to some of these things. Just saying. And the first, the first indicator that we have turns on when selfishness, or when selflessness becomes selfishness. You see, we fall into this trap when we assume that they're happy because I'm happy. 
If I'm happy, then you must be happy. If I'm taken care of, then you must be taken care of. And we begin to tend to our own needs. And we begin to want me and me and me. We think that the other person is here to take care of me, and I'm here to take care of me. Right? And what tends to happen through this kind of a mentality is we begin to have unspoken expectations. We have expectations that he's going to do this every time. Or she's going to understand this every time. And what ends up happening, these unspoken expectations, when inevitably they're not met, they become unspoken resentment. And we begin to, to hold grudges against the person, uh, to get, against our spouse or our friend or anyone in our life that isn't meeting these expectations. And we're silently judging them. Now, if you're here wondering, Uh, I don't think I'd do that. I have a good little verse for you. Or good lots of verses for you. It's in 1 Corinthians 13 that we find our answer to this. The chapter of love, if you are unfamiliar with it. It says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Now, if you've been to any wedding, more than likely you've heard this before. More than likely you've heard this set of verses before, and you might have even engaged in the next activity that we're going to do. Because what's going to happen next is we're going to replace the word love with your name. So I want you guys to, we're going to put this verse back up again at the beginning. And I want you to read from the beginning. And instead, whenever you see love or it's referring to it, say your name. So read with me out loud, please, because that's how we all feel convicted, right? So here we go. Kurt is patient and kind. Kurt is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Kurt does not demand his own ways. Kurt is not irritable. And Kurt keeps no records of being wronged. Kurt does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Kurt never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. I don't know about you, but I had a hard time getting through that. Like, I know I did not measure up in all of those ways. That's painful, right? And you might be sitting here and thinking, you know what? You don't understand, Kurt. I, it's really hard. It's really hard for me to love them. They're not the person I remember when I first met them. They're not the same. If I had known this from the beginning, I would have made a different choice. It's really hard to love them. And this brings us to the next indicator light that tells us we are running on fumes when differences become divisive. You see, 
Speaking from personal experience, I know a lot about what it means to be different from the person you've chosen to spend your life with. This is not a dig at Amanda, it's a dig at me. I am the weird one, right? I, amen, yes, that's right. I, I, I don't need that affirmation, guys. I already know this. But here's the thing, Amanda enjoys socializing. I prefer to seclude. Amanda enjoys a good book. It takes a really good book for me to read. And I could list all of the things that are different, and I've probably talked about our personality types before. She's an, uh, she, well, the first time she took the test, she was an ESTJ. I am an INFP. There are no, no similar letters there. And in fact, in my personality test, it said an ESTJ is a difficult relationship for you. The differences are stark between us. And I imagine that there are st similar stories in your life where you have someone in your life that they are completely different from you. They are totally opposite on different wavelengths. And the thing is, when we first started our friendship, when we first started our relationship and marriage, we used to celebrate this diversity. We used to celebrate this, so like, oh, it's so cute that he does that. Or, man, it's funny that she really does that. And then as time goes on, these things that we find cute and enduring now become something that just grinds our gears. And we're like, and we say phrases like, man, you, it, that's just like you. Or that's typical. You always do this. And we find ourselves in the situation where we are making these agreements with Satan. Because let's be real. This is Satan that's planting these thoughts. He's, he's coming to you and saying, man, he never loads the dishes. He is such a slacker. Or she never recognizes the hard work that you do. And we make these agreements and we say, you know what? You're right. Because God's going to use, or sorry, Satan's going to use everything that he can to drive a wedge between you. Even the things that you once found cute, he's now going to use them to, to show just how annoying you think they could be. But I hate to say it, this isn't his only tactic. This isn't the only thing that he wants to do because, you see, you might be sitting here thinking, you know what, I'm not that selfish. I do take care of my wife. I do take care of my husband. I take care of my friends. And you might be here thinking, you know what, I don't find what they do that bad. I, we don't fight over it. It's not that annoying. But we're coming across the third indicator light that is probably the most dangerous one. And this light turns on when the marriage becomes mundane. Or the relationship becomes mundane. Because what tends to happen is we, we go into the marriage and we have this idea that everything is all sparkly. And, and for the first few months, it's all nice and well-intentioned and it's beautiful. And we, we end up having these experiences like like uh, that are spoken of in Song of Solomon 2-3. 
It says, like the finest apple tree in the orchards is my lover among other men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. Like, to, as Lindsay would put this one, this is as barfy as it gets, right? And this is the first, the, our first foray into our friendships, relationships with other people. We find ourselves enjoying their company, and it's a beautiful thing. But eventually, that shine begins to dull. And that, that which we found appealing now becomes apathetic. Because the truth is, the truth is, if Satan can't make you fight, he'll make you not care. If, if he can't make you angry, he'll, ta- he'll steal your passion. And this is just as true in our friendships as our marriages. And what tends to happen is, as you, if you're married, you become intimate roommates. You see, there, there becomes a time where you can clearly see this is where he stands and this is where she stands. Now make no mistake, I'm not, talking, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy some time away from your friends or your spouse. It is absolutely necessary for you to take time to recharge. But when you sit down and truly evaluate, how do we spend our time? Do I spend more time by myself than I do with the one that I promised to spend the rest of my life with? Then you might be in serious trouble. And this is why this is the most dangerous, this is the most dangerous indicator light. Because very often, if you won't spend time with your spouse, then you might be finding yourself preferring to spend time with someone else. So how do we fix this? How do, we, how do we keep from being selfish? How do we keep from fighting over what, what the differences are between us? And how do we combat the mundane? How do we refuel a relational fuel tank? Well, the first thing that we need to do, it starts with being mature, and we need to humble ourselves. We need to be willing to admit that things aren't right. We need to be willing to admit that there is a problem. And then we need to get off of our high horse. Because we can't expect the other person to do the work. We can't expect them to recognize that there's a problem and for them to take the steps towards doing something about it. It's our task, our, our job, if we see the problem in our relationship, to do something about it. John 13, 34 says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. You see, what we don't, in the verses before this, Jesus shows us exactly how we should be loving each other Because he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes his disciples' feet. The creator of the universe, the God of everything, the one who has every excuse not to serve his creation, gets down and serves his creation. 
And then he looks at us. He looks at me and says, love as I have loved. And this means, so this means we need to get off our high horse and serve our spouse and serve our friends. This is a difficult thing to do because we are very prideful and it speaks directly against the selfishness nature that is within us. And now we are approaching at the par- what I call the paradox of marriage. If you want your marriage to succeed, if you want to be fulfilled in your marriage, in your friendships, then you must serve. You must put the needs of the other before yourself. It's counterintuitive to, to think that if I put them first, I'm going to be fulfilled. But if both people are engaging in this, then both are fulfilled. I don't need to concern myself with my needs if I am focused on theirs. And likewise, they don't need to concern themselves with their needs if I'm focused on mine. Or if I'm... You know what I mean. (laughs) You see, for a healthy marriage to thrive, your biggest priority next to God should be your spouse. Now I will warn you, this is something that will take time. They're not going to notice you loading the dishwasher tonight without being asked. They're not going to notice that the carpets have been vacuumed for five days straight. This will take time. But as with all things that are worth it, it takes time. And Romans chapter 12 emphasizes more of this, and it takes it a step further. Not only does it tell us that we need to humble ourselves, but it adds more to it. Read with me, it says, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. You see, This verse is telling us not only do you need to humble yourself, but you need to recognize that yes, your friend or your spouse is different from you. And that's okay. We are okay with this. And this brings us to the next thing that we need to do, and that is delight in our differences. Delight in your differences. What makes your spouse unique is one of the reasons that you chose them over all others. It's what set them apart. And now what's, if we let what set them apart being the thing that divides us, then we are in very dangerous ground. And so it's all a shift in perspective. I could look at the differences between me and my wife, her tendency to desire and need social interaction, and instead, if I were to look at that in a positive light and say, you know what, because she knows 
everything that needs to happen in a social situation, I can trust her to make the right call, what parties we need to make an appearance at. And she can also look at that in me and say, you know what, I, I can look at him and he can tell me when we need some time together. See, what divides us or what the differences between us are assets. They're not divisive. I'll get my words right eventually. You see, God has made each of us unique on purpose. God created us different from each other because each of us has our own unique gifts and talents. And God wants us to use these in our marriage. God wants us to recognize that we are each uniquely gifted and we are to love that about each other. Because, and the, and the thing that we need to recognize about this is that we should not try and control them. We should not try and decide whether or not what, they're, what makes us different is good or bad. And we shouldn't try to stifle that. Because when we try to control that, we end up parenting them. Have you ever been parented by someone that doesn't have that authority? Yeah, we've all been there. You see, I don't have the authority to parent my wife. I don't have the authority to parent my friends. And that's okay. That's just as God intended. And the last thing that we need to do to fill up our tank is to mix up the mundane. You see, we've all heard the complaint that this person isn't who I've married. Maybe we've thought that ourselves. And I don't think the issue is that they've changed. I think the issue is that they haven't changed. And that we've become bored of it. We were expecting something to change, and guess what? It didn't. And so, as we begin to look at mixing up the mundane, if you're hoping to do something out of the norm, then do it. Start a new tradition. Look for common interests. Start a common hobby. You see, for me, personally speaking, Amanda is doing a, uh, she does Zumba, right? And for the past few weeks, I've been trying to sit, think about who can watch Titus because I want to go and do Zumba. Not because I think it's going to get me in shape, it probably will, but because I enjoy spending time with my wife. Find things that you enjoy doing and do them together. And if you sit here and think, man, there's nothing that we like in common. Cool. Start something new. Both of you eat, I hope. So go to a restaurant and become a food critic. Talk to your wife and, and say, what do you think about this part of the meal? How did that taste? Start driving up connections with each other. Because I guarantee, find one point of passion, share that passion together, and it will begin to spread into other parts of your life. 
Now maybe, maybe you're here and you're saying, Kurt, all of this is good. It's good advice. But you don't understand what they have done to me. You don't understand the hardship that I have gone through. You don't understand the hurt that they have put me through. In which case, I'm going to say you need something a little more basic. And that is to practice forgiveness. And so as we enter these, this last moment of our service, I'm going to invite each one of us to adopt a posture of prayer. And if that's coming up to the altar, great. If you're a spouse and you want to come up to the altar, make sure your, your other spouse is okay with it. There's nothing more awkward than one of you going up to the altar to, to ask for forgiveness, right? But now is the time to adopt a posture of prayer and begin to practice forgiveness. And if you're sitting here and again, you're struggling with some of these basic things, I'm going to throw in a shameless plug and say, in January 26th, we are hosting a marriage boot camp where we're going to be talking about some very basic things that every marriage needs to have and needs to have them on lockdown in order to succeed. And so as we spend these last moments in prayer, be open to whether or not a marriage boot camp is right for you and your spouse. Even if you're in strong in marriage, it's good to go to this so that you can get the affirmation that you are doing the right thing. But at this moment, the first thing that you should be doing right now, that we should be doing, is practicing forgiveness. So if you will join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I don't know what's going on in everyone's life. I don't know the hurts, the hardships that we've all endured. But Father, You do. And God, we trust that You are mighty. God, that You are capable of helping us work through the hardship and the pain that we have endured. God, the heartache, the fights, the selfishness. God, You are greater than all of this. And so, Father, we ask that You would help us to release all of this in Your name. God, to release it all at Your feet and to trust You with our relationships and our marriage. God, we lay our spouse at Your feet. And Father, we ask that You would help us to be humble, to serve them. Father, that we would celebrate in our differences. And God, that we would seek out the passion to mix up the mundane. Father, we lay all of this down before You. It is in Your wonderful name we pray. Amen.